Welcome back to Death Holler. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. Death, and joining me as always is my co-host, La Urena. Did you survive Valentine's Day, Urena? I mean, I don't feel like I did. <laughs> you, you, you feel like that you uh, you might be one of the undead now, huh? Yeah, I'm just here. I'm just kind of bouncing around. I'm groaning a lot. I'm, you know, I'm hungry. I'm always hungry. And nothing, nothing fulfills. So yeah. let me ask you this: the smooth jazz suddenly sound appealing to you? It does, and I thought it was because I'm getting older. <laughs> uh, when you say that you will love someone forever, how deeply do you intend to keep that vow? Will you love them even beyond the bounds of death? We are finishing up February with films that look take a look at the nature of love and death, specifically when the loved ones in question can't seem to stay in their graves. <laughs> so grab a shovel and let and join us as we exhume De La Morte, De La More, and Life After Beth. But first, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you could take the time to like, comment, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you prefer. It helps us get more visibility on podcast listings and helps us grow. Also, consider following us on social media. You can find us on TikTok and Twitter under Death Holler Pod, and we can be found on Instagram and Facebook under Death Holler Podcast. We appreciate everyone who listens and hope you enjoy the show. All right. First movie we got here is Della Morte Della More, a.k.a. Cemetery Man from 1994, which is funny because we just covered a movie from 1994. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a decent movie for zombies in a weird sense, I guess. Uh, tagline, zombies, guns, and sex. Oh, my. <laughs> I mean, you can't get more direct and straight to the point than that. I think that's a decent tagline. Yeah. Uh, directed by uh, Mikhail Salvi, uh, written by Tizinio Sclavi, who wrote the novel, and uh, Gianni Romali, who wrote the screenplay, this is an Italian effort, folks. There's Italian names here, and I'm probably butchering them, but I'm doing my best, okay? I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, we got music by Ricardo Bezeo and Manuel De Sica, uh, made for a budget of $4 million. I can only find that it made $250,000 U.S. dollars, although... Listening to the commentary by the two directors, or by the director and the and the writer, they said that they did well. So I don't know how they got well is losing money. Maybe it made more money on the the secondary 
uh, movie market, like, you know, DVDs <clears throat> and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's the only thing I could think of because it does look, I mean, we'll discuss more, but it potentially can be or is a cult classic of sorts. It does not look like it was made for $4 million. Granted, this was back in 94, and we just watched a movie made for 30, what, $55 million or? Yeah, $55 million, so, so. Yeah, I guess $4 million would be, okay, I, I could go with that, yeah. Uh, principal players, we have Rupert Everett playing Francesco Della Morte, our protagonist obsessed with love and death. Um, he was He's actually in the new movie, Napoleon. That okay. It's not rated very well, but I mean, you know, it's it it just came out in theaters. The one that uh, um, oh god, what's the name? The one that did Alien, the original Alien movie, it was directed Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott's Napoleon. So. Okay. Uh, he's also in Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, and of all things, he did the voice for Prince Charming in Shrek the Third. I freaking I love it. He was in Narnia too. Yeah, yeah, he's been in a few things. Oh, yeah, he's been in a lot. I've seen him in quite a few movies. I like him as an actor, I will say that much. Uh, he's got a presence about him, I'll mm-hmm. give him that. There's, there's a, He stands out in this movie a lot versus yes. everything that's going on. I feel like he commands got, your presence, though, you know? Yeah, he kind of pulls the, the, the well, when another actor actress in the movie's not on screen, at least, <laughs> he pulls your attention. Uh, we have Francois Haji Lazario uh, playing Nagi, the monosyllabic friend slash co-worker who just says nya through most of the movie. Yeah. He has like one spoken bit of dialogue toward the end that I actually put in his quote. Yes. Uh, he's been in movies such as Brotherhood of the Wolf, City of Lost Children, and was in a TV version of Les Miserables. So there you go. Wasn't that, didn't that do really horrible? Uh. Which which one now? The you TV. might be talking about the movie, the one that had uh, um, Wolverine in it, Hugh Jackman. Um, um, I didn't hear about that one doing horrible, but now that you've mentioned it, uh, let's see. It doesn't really say, so that means it probably did bad. If Google isn't telling you right off the bat, <laughs> I got about a seventy to eighty percent, so that's not terrible, terrible. But I was I was talking about the TV show. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. I've not seen it. Uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf is a movie we will be covering at some point, though, because it is a twist on the werewolf movie, so pretty good. Um, all right. Anna Fauci. <laughs> not not to be confused with Anthony Fauci. We'll, we'll, uh, <laughs> spell their na- they spell their names different. They probably sound alike, but uh, one is a horrific person who... Uh, makes up uh, diseases in order to, to, you know, make you buy the cure. The other one is a beautiful woman that has the most perfect tits in existence. Well, That's those, all I can say. They're definitely fakies, but they are good fakies. So. They, whoever did the work deserves a raise is all I'm going to say. Noah said they were definitely Italian boobies because Hollywood, <laughs> when they say plastic surgery, they really make you look like plastic. But I feel like other countries have it down and that's where you need to go to get your boobies done if you're going to get your boobies done. Yeah, I mean, if she's any if she's an advertisement, that's where you need to go, folks. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh she is the love interest of uh Francesco della Morte that mysteriously keeps being reborn into other women yes. uh, throughout the movie. We will get into that when we discuss because this movie is very surreal and there's some themes in this movie that are not apparent unless you have somebody explain them to you, yeah. which I had to. And once you do, then you start seeing things that make a lot more sense about it. Uh, she's been in a bunch of different, like, you know, projects, but they were mostly Italian and I didn't put them on here because I don't think, I mean, I don't know how much of an audience we have in Italy, but I mean, I don't know any of the movies, so I can't speak on them. Uh, Mickey Knox plays Marshall uh, Stranero, who's the clueless investigator in the movie. Who, Is he clueless? He's very bad at his job because okay. he knows he... The line at the end of the movie where he's telling Francesco, he's like, there's a there's a psycho on the fourth floor who's killed three people. And then he sees that Francesco's got a gun. And he's like, good, you've got a gun. You can protect yourself. Yes. I love that fucking line oh, yeah. so much. <laughs> Uh, he's actually been in some big movies. He yeah. was in Godfather three, uh, uh, Frankenstein unbound vampires in Venice, uh, ghoulies Two, uh, the one where they're in the toilet, uh, the little ghoulie guys, 
which will be covered under a uh, creature feature at some point. And then stage fright, which is a, uh, slasher film that Mikel Suave or however you say his name, uh, did way back uh, before he did this movie and will be done. We'll probably pick up when we cover slashers again. So. Okay. Uh, Fabiana For- Formica, Formica, however she wants to say yeah. her name, plays uh, Valentina Scanarotti, I guess. I don't know how you pronounce that. Valentina, we'll just go with that. Yeah. The mayor's daughter who lost her head over a boy. Going home. Uh, she was in a movie called High Death. Uh, not High Death, but High Death. Okay. Um, and then she's been in some other stuff too, but that was the thing that stood out to me. Uh, Clive Ricci plays Dr. Versace, the doc who has the antidote to Viagra. I don't think <laughs> it worked. Uh, no, it doesn't. I guess, which is good for the main character. Uh, he was in Mother of Tears and Terminator 2, of all things. And then we have Katya Anton, who plays Claudio's other girlfriend. Uh, she loves her dead boyfriend. Oh, God, doesn't I he? Mean, she? She she just loves him so much. Uh, Anton Alexander plays Franco, the only person who can call uh, Francesco, and there might be a reason for that. We'll mm-hmm. get to. Uh, he was in the first Omen, so um, kind of a you know big uh, horror movie. And then Barbara Cupizzi plays Magda, the nice elderly woman. She was also in Stage Fright, uh, which was another one of Mikhail's other movies. And she's one of the only people that doesn't come back. She's the only one who doesn't come back, and she's the only one who's super nice to both Nagi yes. and Francesco, and I've got a theory about that. Okay. We'll get to it. So, synopsis. Francesco Della Morte is the caretaker of the Buffalora Cemetery, and life would be okay but for one problem. The dead don't like to stay dead. Anyone buried in Della Morte Cemetery returns seven days later as zombies. Della Morte being paid overtime to deal with the issue doesn't question it, it isn't until he meets a gorgeous widow that his life begins to unravel. Love and death are inescapably linked for the cemetery man. Nagi likes him some head. Anna Fauci is one of the hottest women alive or dead. <laughs> and the and the world might not exist past Buffalora. Uh, quotes. Francesco Della Morte. Uh, my name is Francesco Della Morte. Weird name, isn't it? Francis of Death, St. Francis of Death. I often thought of having it changed. Andre Della Morte would be nicer, for example. <laughs> like oh. the Della Morte, or the, the Francis parts, the weird part of it. Yeah. Uh, also, Francesco, I'd give my life to be dead. There's something in that phrase that I'll get to. It, it's it, it's actually a, a pivot point in this movie. Okay. Uh Francesco, again, uh, Franco is the only living person who even calls me. Now and then I stop by his office to remind myself what he looks like. You can't live on memories alone. Wow. There's something behind that as well. Uh, Francesco, uh, how's everything in your life? How are dear Mara and Cynthia? Uh, hmm. You know, sometimes I wonder if, actually, if, if you actually exist, Franco. Yeah, I mean, you do have a wife and daughter, don't you? Uh, I only ask because sometimes I think you all that, that you made them all up. Um, mm, there's something to that one as well. <laughs> That's basically uh, something about all of the things he says. Uh, well, not all of them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff he says in the movie that's just him talking about love and all that. But I picked the ones that specifically are the big reveal in this movie that that makes it make sense whenever everything in this movie makes no sense, you know? Yeah. Uh, on a bright, sunny day, Francesco comments, the weather's gone bad again. That might, that's There's a lot of uh, hints at his personality, the fact that mm-hmm. he likes the dark, he likes it when it rains. Noggy is the one that likes it when it's bright and sunny yeah. out. Yes. Uh, Francesco, the living dead and the dying living are all the same, cut from the same cloth, but disposing of, a, of dead people is a public service, where, whereas you're in all sorts of trouble if you kill someone while they're still alive. God, the mm. truth behind that. Uh, message. Yeah. Um, Valentina, with your consent, I'd like to marry Nagi. And then the mayor said, this horrible thing? And Valentina's like, I'm not such a great catch either, Daddy. And then the mayor's like, "Not as long, uh, not as long, dear, as I've got a breath in my body." With, to which Valentina replies, "All right, we'll fix that right away." <laughs> when she proceeds to fly at his neck and like rips it apart. Yeah. Um, 
the new mayor, Savardi, uh, Mr. Dale Morte, I'm Savardi, the new mayor. Why the barbed wire? Do they climb in and at night? And then Francesco's like, no, they climb out sometimes. <laughs> and then girl, no, please don't. He's only eating me. And then Francesco's like, move aside. And the girl's like, mind your business. I shall be eaten by whoever I please. To which Francesco says, this is my business. They pay me for it and proceeds to kill both the zombie and her with one bullet, which is yeah. pretty fantastic. Two birds, yeah. one stone. Yeah. Uh, Marshal Stranero uh, to Della Morte uh, as he's leaving the hospital. Della Morte, wait, for God's sake, wait. There's another maniac on the loose. He's on the fourth floor killing people. He already shot three. You got a gun. That's good. Now you can defend yourself. Hey, take my advice and get the hell out of here quick. To which Francesco uh, replies, Stranero, it was me. And then suddenly everybody disappears around him. Yeah. Suspicious. Uh, Francesco, past this tunnel is the rest of the world. What do you think the rest of the world looks like, Nagi? Can you imagine it? You're right. It's beyond imagination. And then uh, finally, whenever he sees it, I should have known, should have known it. The rest of the world doesn't exist. Um, so all of this backpedaling, all of this uh, me being, you know, mysterious about this, the theory behind this movie that I sent to you is that Franco who's dying because he took iodine or trying to commit suicide after he killed his wife and his daughter. And presumably three other women, one of them being a prostitute that he slept with that he loved um, that he loved, uh, or thought he loved. Uh, this is all his purgatory. He's caught in a coma and he can't pass on. And Nagi is his good, mm -hmm. uh, side. Who's, who's childlike and, 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 and accepting death. He's, he's accepted the fact that he's dead and going to be moving on to the next life, which is, uh, symbolized by the fact in the movie, whenever, uh, you see Francesco trying to put this skull together, which symbolizes death, but he can't ever figure out what that means or yeah. how to do it. Nagi goes straight to it, puts it together instantly. Oh, and, yeah. And, and, and so Nagi is his good side that's ready to move on. Francesco is the dark side, the obsessive side of Franco that ended up killing the, the woman and ended up killing the kid, the, his wife and daughter, uh, and, and is refusing to move on. And like every time that, and all these dead people is killing, is basically his guilt coming to life. And he's just trying to, to, you know, eradicate it and try to basically uh, not even acknowledge that he's complicit in anything, at yeah. least until the end of the movie. Um, it's, it's pretty powerful when you watch the movie from that frame of mind. Cause if you watch it, otherwise it's just this guy shooting zombies in the, the coolest looking fucking cemetery ever until shit starts happening where it's like, did he really dream it? Is he, is he really kill these people? Cause Tornero is like, not really, um, I mean, he, he claims that the people died, and he's got an idea that Francesco did it, but then he always lets him off the hook and says, okay, it was somebody else, yeah. or, or he just ignores it. So the the movie seems like a fever dream throughout the entire thing, which makes sense because if you're dying or if you're in a perpetual coma, then everything would be a surreal dream to you at that point. Like, yeah. I mean, you're, you'd be waving, your consciousness would be all over the place. Um, I don't, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, cause I'm not, I'm not through breaking down what I think the characters in this movie symbolize, but go ahead with what you think so far. Watching the movie, I, we immediately, we knew something wasn't right. We're like, something's not right. Cause he's just killing these people, getting away with it. The cop kind of knows that it's him, but doesn't really do anything about it. Um, the, the, the one thing I have to point out, knowing what I know now, because having read that article is that. Franco worked, he was like a county clerk of some sort. Yes. He worked in an office. That office was definitely his mind. And all those files were like memories and just whatever our brain stores, that's what his head looked like on the inside for sure. That that is a good point that I never even thought about. That that is a hundred percent that office because there's a scene where he keeps knocking off mm -hmm. files and trying to pick them back up. So it's like him trying to keep a part of his you know memory intact, even though he's trapped in this coma. Yes, and I mean shit is all over the place, which is kind of how the movie was to a degree. It really wasn't. I mean, obviously it had kind of a a standard, not standard, but like it had a, a storyline to follow. So there there's that. It's not you know. You're not going to be lost, but you're going to be confused. 
Yeah, I mean, I was confused until I read that article, and I'm mm-hmm. like, God Almighty! It was like the light went on. Yes. And I was like, this it it totally makes me understand every bit of this movie now. Yeah, watching it, I was like, I'm not fully understanding because then you see the character, the girl that just returns in different characters, and I'm like, well, there she is again. Which I mean, has got to be exciting for someone like you and Noah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the middle part wasn't because the middle version of her was more chaste like. I mean, she she wanted it, she, you know, said she wanted him to be impotent. And then whenever he went to become impotent, then she's like, actually, the mayor raped me and I actually kind of liked it. Yeah. So now I don't want to be with you, which I, I want your opinion on what you think that means, like in the co- course of the movie, considering it's all, he, it's supposed to be symbolizing one woman to him, you know, the one that, that the whore that he, you know, yes. that he was obsessed with. But, I noticed that the movie works backwards because she's an unknown like widow who like slept with with an old man, you know? Yeah. uh, And then he got with her and then like, you know, was obsessed with her and then meets the middle version. But the end version is the version that actually symbolized the, it was like he was working back. It was like his mind wouldn't accept who she was until the very end of the movie, because then the movie, she becomes the young college age prostitute that was probably the real woman that he, that he hooked up with and killed. So she works her way back through mm-hmm. the court. It's like he's he's working through his guilt to get back to the original woman that inspired all this. I have to ask you a question, and I don't know if you caught it. I had to play it multiple times because Noah swears up and down that she was a teenager married to the old rich man because when she's in that almost like not mausoleum but whatever it is where it's surrounded by the skeletons and everything the ossuary as she likes to say okay. the bone house yeah. yes um he's like you haven't even graduated high school or you hadn't even graduated high school and i was like that could be for anything noah like she could be 30 years old and not had graduated high school you know yeah. and he's like no she's a high school student he married a high school student and i was like I- I don't know. I got to ask the Reverend because I wasn't getting that. I think, I think that's him working back to the fact she was a college student. Okay. Like she had just got out of high school. So, but he did, but like his mind had parts of that, you know, going back to what you said about Franco and his memory being mm-hmm. out of whack. She, I think he, part of him knew that she was young, okay. like, you know, and that she was sleeping with these older men. Hence the reason that every other character in the movie that she sleeps with besides Franco is like way older. Her's like an old man, basically, yeah. and it's like you know that's his mind, basically saying that these these old men were fucking her, you know, and like she was giving into it, but that was her job as a prostitute, you yeah. know, like that's what she did. Um, I want your opinion on this. I think that Valentina represents his daughter because who loves her? Or no, not not his daughter. I'm sorry. Valentina represents his wife because who loves her in the movie? Noggy loves Valentina. Oh, yeah. And here's another thing, reason I think that was his wife. She's represented as having bridal veil on when her head's cut off. And here's here's some other things. So Noggy's in love with her. She accepts Noggy, even though he had that initial bad reaction where he vomited on her. Mm -hmm. Uh, Noggy feels like he's not worthy of her at first and then becomes more comfortable with her. Uh, she has a fight with her father over the fact that, you know, he, you know, he shouldn't, uh, her father doesn't feel like she should be with Nagi. I think that symbolism, the fact that Franco had his, his father-in-law, who was the mayor in this sense, didn't didn't approve of him. And that was like, you know, that was his mind working that part of it out. And throughout the whole movie, remember Francesco keeps saying that he wouldn't have the job if the mayor, oh yeah, you know, wouldn't have gave him the job. So Franco in real life was caught in a situation where his father-in-law had given him a cushy job somewhere, and he was living under the thumb of a father-in-law who did not approve of the marriage, yeah, and did not like him and Valentina together. The other part about Valentina that I think symbolizes the wife is that. Okay, so he when Nagi pulls her out of the cemetery, he only gets the head. Yes. Francesco makes a comment, you'll find other women with bodies. So I think that Francesco or Franco, going back to the original person, he loved his wife's mind and her personality, but, but he did not, not her, think her, her body. body was attractive. Oh my God, that's disgustingly so accurate. 
And um, and then and then the part that really sold it to me, just rewatching it, is when Francesco comes in there after she has bitten uh, the mayor in the neck, and then uh, and he has to, and he puts her down. He tells Nagi his good side. He's like um, he's like you have to really accept the fact that she was uh, she was uh, getting a bit off, which to me symbolizes in the movie that their relationship was breaking down and that the good side of Franco wouldn't accept it, but the dark side of him, Francesco, was like, this marriage is not working out, and you need to get out of it, you know, basically, yeah. is, is, is the conversation there. So do you think I'm wrong in that? I think everything points to Valentina being his the symbol for his wife. I wouldn't have thought it at first, but it makes sense, because what else would Valentina be unless it was indeed his daughter... But I think his daughter is the girl that hopes up with Claudio. That's allowing the, you know, the zombie Claudio. Oh, to yeah. eat her. Oh, I yeah. think that was his daughter because think of this, when he met, when he sees her, he tells her, he's like, you need to get away from that boy. Oh, yeah. And she's like, no, it's my choice. I can do what I want. And he loves me or whatever. You can totally, if you put the recontextualize that, if he had a daughter who'd grown up to where she was rebelling against him, Franco in this sense and was dating like some motorcycle guy that Franco didn't approve of then like you could see them having a fight like that where he was like you need he's a bad person he's he's using you he's eating you alive basically yeah and the daughter's like if he if that's what he wants to do it's fine because I love him you know yeah. that sort of thing okay I think that girl in the cemetery was his daughter okay that, that, that Franco was or I mean that Claudia was eating then that makes more sense to me I like I said I would have never put together that Valentina was his wife but it does it does make sense like it's symbol she it's symbolizes o- it's only because Nagi loved her was the what that clued me in on who that might be and the, and the bridal yeah. part of it you know uh, and the only thing that's off about that whole comparison is the fact that that now Valentina runs off with Claudio uh at one point in the movie but I wonder if that's just to symbolize that whenever uh, maybe like Franco was a little bit, uh, whenever Franco's daughter brought Claudio, the real Claudio, into their life, that maybe his wife, Valentina, uh, you know, thought he was a little bit attractive herself. Yeah. And that they gave him like, and that's and in his mind, in his coma, he, you know, he made Valentina attracted to, you know, the, basically the bad boy that his daughter brought in, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Like say they're having a bad relationship. She sees this younger, you know, hot, you know, like motorcycle guy, whatever he is, bad boy brought into the house, their relationship, you know, he's feeling impotent. So they're probably, their sex life's probably bad at that point. And she's showing him just a little bit too much attention. Yeah. And then that's why, you know, in the movie, Valentina runs off with him. It's giving him some kind of reason to re- or do whatever he to think however he's thinking or to react the way that he's reacting. Yes. And the one other part, well there's two other people in this movie that I think are symbols. The old lady, I think is his mother. Oh yeah, she's think super about nice. It. Every time and- every time she comes in the movie, she is bragging on how sweet and kind of a boy Nagi is, which mm-hmm. is his good side. And then she's always praising how smart and intelligent and, and everything that Franca or Francesco is. Mm-hmm. And she calls him engineer. So yes. at some point in Franco's life, he became an engineer and yes. his mother was proud of him for that. But like she, but, and she's the doting old woman that's always in the cemetery. And that's the reason that she never comes back is because that's his mother. Yes. And then the one other person is the is Stranero, the the police officer. I think that's his conscience. His conscience is showing up to say, "There's some people that died," yeah. and he's like, "He's like, it wasn't me." And like conscious, you know how you can convince yourself that you're not guilty of something. Yeah, he 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 puts his conscious off and says, "That wasn't me." And the conscience is like, "Okay, all right, I'm gonna go do something else now." Yeah, that makes. I, I think that's I think that's who that is. Yeah, because all of these people are clearly people that are playing in his head. Like, he's got a whole, he's got his own fucking television series going on. He's got his own Truman show going on in his head. The only thing I can't figure out about the movie is the symbolism for the phone book, why he is obsessed with the phone book in the movie. I don't know what that represents to him. Yeah, um, oh, God, um, 
I, when I read in the article, Unagi, uh, Unagi, Nagi throwing away, uh, I just called him a sushi fucking piece of fish. <laughs> He's got the power. Yeah. But anyways. Um, he threw the phone book in there like that was Nagi's symbolism of letting go of everything that he's holding on to, basically, because that phone book was the one thing he was holding on to. Basically, the cross off the names of the dead people that, you know, or the people that had died. That's maybe maybe that's did. all that's maybe all it symbolizes then. It's just his memory of these these people that's died and his good side was like, get rid of this. Yes. You just need to move on. And it was also the people again, these were the people that he killed, technically. So he was holding on to something specifically. I know the seven people he killed was just some random killing spree before he fucking poisoned himself. But like everything prior to that were specific people. Yes. So. Uh, in, in particular, his wife and his daughter, and then the and the, of course the prostitute that keeps coming back yes. throughout all of this. Um, and then of course it, it says in the article, but it's very profound. Whenever that somebody mentions it, him going to visit Franco and the and the words that like I just mentioned about how he likes to call he he likes to visit Franco uh, just to remember who he was. Yes, that symbolizes that the dark side of him periodically bubbles up to his consciousness goes to the brain, in other words, where you said, that, which is a brilliant observation, you know, where he's got all his files. He, he goes there just to remind himself that Franco is a part of him. Yes. You know. Which is ironic because you don't notice it till the end when he says, I need to see the measurements, that they look similar, but they don't. Francesco is the idealized version of Franco. If you look at the two of them, he's the, the good-looking yes. version of Franco. 100%. And then Nagi, the good part is surprisingly the obese, monstrous looking. It's really weird, like why he envisions his good side as being looking like that. Maybe yeah. it's because he can't face his good side because his good side. And it's and the other symbolism is too. If you notice throughout the movie, his good side lives under. Oh in, yeah. in the dark underneath Francesco. Yeah. He's, you know, it, it, Francesco's the one that lives up top and the good side lives in the basement. Basically, uh, comatose watching TV through most of it until he's needed. Yes. Which is, there's some symbolism there too. But, um, when he get when he goes through the tunnel, that's the symbolism, obviously that he's finally transitioning over into the afterlife. But then I, I don't know what that necessarily means when he gets to the edge I, I, other than the fact that maybe he's afraid to go over the edge to yeah. finally, you know, he, he gets most of the way to the afterlife, but he's unwilling to go the, all the way to move on. And there's a lot in the movie that I didn't even put in the, um, in the quotes that I just realized whenever I was rewatching it again, uh, whenever he has that, uh, has that medicine to make him impotent or whatever, and he's got a fever from it and he's yeah. complaining about it. And uh, he says he feels like he's between life and death. Nagi says, like, no, like he always says. And he has a very interesting response. He responds back to Nagi. He says, yeah, I do seem like, I do feel like I live in, in a constant state between life and death. Uh, I mean, he's basically telling you he's, he's yeah. in a coma, you know. So, I mean, given that, well, I mean, just we'll, we'll break down the movie as far as the visuals and all that. But given that, I mean... Is the movie better once you real put all this stuff together than just the fever dream that it looks like whenever you're watching it the first time? Um, yeah, for me, it's definitely better. How much better? TBD, you know. <laughs> I, I I will say this visually, the, I think the movie is is got some gorgeous like visuals in it. Like the, it's very artsy, like. The, I mean, I'll give you one scene just because it, it costs the mind a pair of great assets, as it were. No. But in the scene where he's making love to she in the cemetery, and she's like got this gothic like angel statue behind her. Oh yeah. And the way they frame it, she's got wings. You know, the way that she while she's on top of him, it, there's there's a lot of that in this movie. A lot of a lot like of that. that. Yeah, there's a lot of angel wings, uh, or maybe wings of death, if you will. Um, in the, in this film, I saw it at least two or three times is what uh, I'm There's thinking. one scene toward the end of the movie when he shot the wings off of the statue mm -hmm. and they're on the ground and he's got the wings yes. at that point. Yes, I did catch that as well, which I was surprised because normally I don't catch things like that, but I'm like, that's definitely wings that they placed them in that position for a specific reason. 
Yeah, and then the way they symbolize death, the way he looks in this movie, especially whenever the the books are burned and like yes. you know death appears at that point, I think they did a very good job. I mean, even the zombies look good in this movie. I think. I mean, they. I mean, some of them more so than others. But yeah. Like the, when she returns back, that creepy way she looks, like you know, where she's got like a little bit of rod on her, but like the 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 knotted you know like uh, roots or whatever yeah. like growing out of her. I think that's a cool look for a zombie. Yes, that was pretty cool. She's going to look good no matter what, though, so she doesn't count. Some of the zombies were, uh, you know. I like the one at the beginning that you couldn't really tell. It could have just been a sickly man. He had a briefcase, but then he saw the fly on his ear, and I was like, that's a zombie. And then for sure he was a zombie. He got shot right in the head. Yeah, well, and then the, the zombie, uh, which the humor in this movie is pretty funny, but the zombie uh, Boy Scouts or whatever, they don't look too bad. I mean, whenever they're coming in there and they're trying to bite Oh, him, yeah. You know? Which was um, weird because he did get bit, but apparently zombie bites don't translate in this universe. Yeah, he makes a point of saying that. I mean, it's almost like they had to, but he says it to the audience. He's like, he tells Nagi, he's like, the bite doesn't turn you into one, you know? Yeah. It, it's it's doesn't work that way but he does have a moment of doubt because he after she bites him he's like am i doomed to come back yeah because she bit me um but i don't know i the look of the cemetery is one of the best oh yeah i mean i I love how that they made that place look i don't know okay so i'm having a hard time so the cemetery was gorgeous like everything about it was beautiful they made it look really good they made it look like it's still a place that's visited but also a place that's neglected somewhat you yes. know, um, which but, could be a symbolized for a symbol for Franco. Maybe yes. lower the doctors are coming in constantly there. He's he's being neglected, but like they're still paying attention to it. Yeah. You know? um, but the, the place where Nagi and, and Francesco lived is huge. Did you notice that? But it doesn't look that way from the inside. It's like they only live in like not even a quarter of the house, but maybe an eighth of the house. Yeah, they, they live in like a tiny portion of this mm-hmm. figure, which could be another symbol. There are only one fraction of Franco's entire like Yeah, because I'm like, know? look at this big ass, like, what is that? Is that a mausoleum? Is that a hall that has, you know, you go through and you you can pull out graves that are sealed or what? Not pull them out, obviously, but like there's sealed graves in there. What is going on with this? It's It looks like a huge brick house or stone house. Yeah, and and but that uh, bone house, the ossuary, as they called it in the movie, uh-huh. that th- they barely did anything to that. That's how that place looked. They found that. Yeah, which, which is, is crazy, insane. I wonder <laughs> if they put the skeletons there. Obviously, that moving skeleton was a prop, you know. Um, yeah, which is, I've not seen an ossuary before. I've never heard of it. A crypt for bones, but. I don't I don't I don't fully understand why she was obsessed with it or was he wanting her to be obsessed with it he you know that's what his brain wanted I think that's what his brain wanted. I think his, love and death to him were the same thing because he killed everybody he loved. Yeah. So I mean and and so because he did that she did that, you know. Yeah. Um but I mean I, I don't I mean, to me, I, I just like to look at the zombies because they, they almost had that uh, throwback look to them. They, they didn't look like the, the Walking yeah. Dead that, you know, we're used to now. They they had almost that uh, late 80s zombie look to them, you know, that is a true. little bit grayish looking. And some were worse than others. Obviously, if it was a fresh zombie, it didn't look too terrible. It just kind of looked like a little bit of makeup effect versus the older ones or the longer they sat in there and rotted. They obviously looked a lot worse. Valentina looked creepy to me when they first had her in the coffin because, I mean, you could tell that they had the real actress just sitting in there because mm-hmm. I was waiting for any moment for eyes to open Yeah, up. same. Like, I mean. You know what uh, she reminded and- me of? She reminded me of um, Mina's friend in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, yeah. Got the, buried Lucy, in that is that her name? Lucy, the one that got buried in that fucking clown wedding dress. <laughs> that thing was god-awful. And she was a whore, so she should have, of all people, should have had something more revealing, you know? <laughs> Dress her up the way she dressed in life. Yeah. You know? Um, But, yeah, I, I, that glass coffin, the way that they did the Claudio up was really interesting. I don't know why they chose to make him like a cyber zombie because he had like oh, a yeah. flashing neon light that, out of one of his eyes, but 
uh, the effect where they they showed his brain split in two with the, like the rebar sticking out of it. That was pretty cool. Um, wasn't there a <laughs> scene where they had uh, what's her name, um, the she, if you will, um, where she backed into a uh, dark. No, I'm thinking. Never mind. I'm thinking of Life After Bath, where she backs into something dark and you can see her eyes glowing. That scene of when we—I mean, I'm jumping the gun. That that scene's creepy. Yes. In Life After Bath. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to that though. But yes, that's the—that's where you're thinking of because whenever I saw that scene, I, I got a little bit of a chill. I'm like, you know, when I was watching, I was like, that's actually surprisingly effective yeah. for what little they did. Yeah. <laughs> But anyways, going back uh, to this one, though, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, visually, going back, I, I like I said, Cemetery looked amazing. Ossuary is an ossuary. It's my first time being introduced to one. The houses looked amazing. The town looked cool. I loved, more than anything, the county clerk office because I was like, that is insane because that's, back in the day, that's what they looked like. They just had files fucking everywhere. Yeah, no computers to file Mm-mm. anything away. It was just even if you had a computer, nasty. you had files stacked on computers. We're in 2024, and I swear to God, even in you know working in accounting, most of everything is scanned and computerized. But we still have drawers and drawers and drawers of files. It's wild, <laughs> and it's like if we—I can't even imagine if this is what it looks like now. What it looked like back in the day, you know. I've seen pictures of what pharmacies looked like back in the day because they couldn't keep the scripts on a computer. They had to actually have physical copies that they could return back to anytime that you got a refill and put a stamp on it to let them know how many was left on it. They had just huge walls of like these drawers that they had to pull out to find your individual scripts from. Yeah. I, I don't even want to think about it. Exactly. Uh, the other visual that you didn't mention that I think was gorgeous was at the end of the movie, that scene where they're looking off into the, I mean, I know it's just the countryside, but I wanted to be there. Like that mountain that they were looking at, you know, off in the distance is him and Nagi were having like their final confrontation, confrontation between each other. Yeah. And he was debating on killing his good side and then backed off of it. Um, which, and, and that's another thing about the movie, interesting thing about the story, kind of going in it a little bit, we've already kind of discussed the story, but uh, it's interesting that when Nagi takes over, that they also symbolize it in the snow globe. Oh, that yeah. That was at the beginning of the movie, you know. He's on the he's on the main side now, and it's, uh, you know, Francesco's like the, the one that's like moved back. Yeah. So, um. What did, what did you think about the acting in this? I think it was intentionally over the top just because they, that was the tone of the movie. I mean. Yeah, I think more so by maybe Francesco, but I don't think he was over the top, but I think the people around him kind of were when they Stranero were acting for with sure him. was over the top. Who? I mean, Stranero, the cop, was oh, like yeah. over the top, just how goofy. Like It was almost like it had ADHD because in the one scene – where he's coming to confront Nagi because he says Nagi is the one that killed uh, the people in the town, and he's got and he knows it's him. Uh, Francesco goes in there, and then there's that whole scene between the mayor and his daughter. Uh, it's it's like right after that, uh, uh, Stranero completely forgets everything, and he's and he doesn't even pursue Nagi. He's like, oh, that's fine. We're we're moving on from the murders now. Yeah. Just like I said, his conscience has moved on. He he didn't care at that point. Yeah. So. But, uh, I, yeah, I, I guess I would say Francesco was more grounded than some of the other characters. Although the, the guy who plays Nagi, I mean, he has to kind of play it more out there because they don't, they don't give him any lines. I mean, he just says, nah, through yeah, the whole movie, exactly. So. I mean, <laughs> and I, I, I even thought he was grounded. I know Francesco kind of amps up a little bit when he's around the girl, you know, obviously he gets, which out is of probably his... a point. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Um, other than that, yeah, the, the mayor, he just, he's a typical, what you would see, you know, of a person trying to stay in political power. (laughs) It's like, we've got to take a picture of my dead daughter so that everybody can know that all these deaths I can empathize with. It's like, really? That's, that's okay. (laughs) I like how the photographer is like, do I just take the picture from the neck down or what? (laughs) (laughs) They don't even care. Yeah. 
you moved your head with that picture of Goldie Hawn behind you, and I and I thought for a split second out of the corner of my eye that she blinked, and I was like, "Fuck, uh, you need to run right now." You're like, she's <laughs> she's behind she's me, lying, isn't she? Damn it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I I just I th- I, th- I think the acting is it kind of reminds me of some other movies uh, like Dead Alive, which we'll probably cover at some point this season, which yeah. is way out there. Uh, but it's 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 more like it's it's over the top to sell the comedy more than it is you know anything else yeah. you know. Um, and the music, I actually love the music in this movie because there is a theme to Francesco that plays throughout the entire movie. Anytime that he's out and about, it's like da na da na It keeps playing that anytime that he's like getting ready to oh, yeah. like you know do anything. And then there's the rock music that's associated with like Claudio, you know, in particular or whatever, whenever he's like revving around on his motorcycle. And uh, I think it's kind of neat that they gave like certain characters themes in the movie that kind of makes them stand out whenever they're on the screen, you know. I honestly did not notice. So I can't tell you if that's a good or a bad thing. I mean, I guess it's not a bad thing because I wasn't like, God, this music's fucking terrible, you know? Yeah. Um. Before we get into trivia, because I don't think this movie had a whole lot of it, uh, tell, I will know your rating because I... <laughs> You're like, I, I gotta know. I, I'm pretty sure that you hated it, but, like, I want to know. Uh, I'll give it a two and a half. Okay, uh, that's uh, which, fair. Yeah, which is a 50. I didn't hate it, but I definitely didn't love it. And I don't think this is going to be a rewatch for me. However, I will admit, which brings us almost to a three, that after you told me, you know, or sent me that article and I was able to read it afterwards, which I am so glad because your girl loves a spoiler. Um, I think I just quite forgot about it. And then after the movie, I think Noah and I were so dumbstruck. I was like, I got to figure out what was happening. Oh, wait, didn't Reverend send me a fucking article that said, hey, read this after you watch the movie? And I did. And I was like, "Okay." So once I told that to Noah, he's like, oh, my God, this makes so much more sense now. Like, it's like it all comes together. Um, Yeah. But that being said, the reason why it's a two and a half to three, in fact, we'll make it a two point seven. So it puts it closer to three. Is that uh, visually, even though the cemetery was beautiful, the film itself was grainy and not, I didn't watch High Def. So I was getting ready to say that's a huge difference because I just got like the 4K restoration that yes. Severn came out with and it's gorgeous. Like okay. it's, it's, it's beautiful. I watched it on AMC Plus. AMC, we are looking for sponsors if you would like to sponsor us or Shutter <laughs> or, you know, any, well, any, we're not, we don't judge. Um, yeah, so I watched it on AMC, so that's how I got to see it. It looked like an old movie. It looked like a low-budget film. Um, zombies weren't terrible, but they weren't great either. Um, I think just overall the clarity was not great from this. And on all the movies that we've watched or that we're going to be reviewing, you know, from Death Becomes or all the way to Life Without Beth, were all streamed. So it's not like yeah. anyone. I mean, I, I don't have, I don't own DVD. So I guess I would just get that out there now. I don't, I don't have a DVD player. So I think my PlayStation plays DVDs. I don't know. I streamed Life After Beth because I don't think I have it on anything yet. But I, I after rewatching, I think I might want to yeah. get it somehow. So anyways, yeah, um, it just didn't look good to me that, I mean, the acting was good, but it wasn't great. So it was just kind of bleh for me, you know? I'm going to rate it a three and a half, and that might not sound like I'm giving it that high of a praise, but, like, I could see it moving up. Uh, I mean, like, I've, yeah, I even appreciate it. I've watched this, like, this makes, like, the third time now after doing the re- uh, two watches for this, the second time just to get more, you know, like, the symbolism. Yeah. And um, I... I personally love the visuals of the cemetery. The zombies to me are nostalgic because they remind me of like the zombies from like Thriller, the, you know, the the Michael Jackson video. Um, And whenever I read the story about it, it it knocked it up to a whole new level of appreciation for what they were trying to symbolize and, and what's going on in the movie. Because I think when I watched it back on DVD of all things back originally, whenever I first caught it, I was as dumbstruck as you were. That's why I told you to, yeah. to read that because like, Wait. I remember coming out of that movie and I'm like, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, what is this? You know? 
Um, but whenever you recontextualize it, it makes that it makes it a much more enjoyable movie, and it's almost like something you can chew on after the fact, which I I dig in movies. So that's why I'm saying it's three and a half. It's not one that I would like go to constantly, but I could see it maybe even going up a little bit higher than that, just because I like the symbolism that they built into it, and like the different and the visual style that they've got worked into it. Because there's a lot of just I was looking up images to put in my background for this, you know, uh, between me and you and like, like scene after scene, I was finding stuff that I enjoy just like visually from the movie. So yeah. I, I do dig it both ways. Um, but anyways, that, that's kind of where I'm at with it on this, uh, trivia, the ossuary, uh, that was used in this film was quite real. This, supposedly one of the crew members removed some of the bones from it during filming, but oh, quickly Jesus. replaced them the next day, claiming to have encountered an angry ghost following the removal. Wait, what? So one of yeah, the crew they, members removed some of the bones and in an angry ghost. Okay. Wow. Uh, you, fu- you fuck around with dead bodies. I mean, you're, you're going to get some problems. Um, I mean, literally and, metaphorically and all the good stuff when francesco and she are kissing in the crypt with a shroud over their heads the shot mimics the painting the lovers by renee magritte and i would recommend that you just google that so you can kind of get it but they straight up is uh taken from that but the writer and director don't take any credit for that because they said that's actually in the novel that or in, in a in a comic based upon the novel there's a comic there's the novel del morte del more and then he made like kind of oh a, yeah uh, he kind of made a um, a spiritual successor called uh, Dylan Dog or uh, later, and the funny thing is, is that whenever he made the spiritual successor, the main character of Dylan Dog, the comic, was made to look like Rupert Everett. So that whenever they cast this movie and they got Rupert Everett, it's almost like this movie is a comic book adaptation, or you know, into a movie of Dylan Dog, like because they got the guy who inspired the character, basically. Yeah. Um, in the late 90 or 1990s, when Rupert Everett gained some popularity in America, he approached uh, Mikhail uh, Suave to about doing an Americanized remake of Del Morte Del Moore, but it never materialized. Um, I would have been interested to see how they would have went with that. Yeah, I mean, when they made because I feel like if they made it Americanized, they would have taken a lot of the stuff I appreciate about the movie and made it like more like deliberate, like because I feel like I hate to say this, but I feel like for American audiences, they 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 recognize that we don't either have the attention span or the intelligence <laughs> and they just, they're, they're like, okay, Franco's dying, you know, flashing red lights. He's dying. This guy symbolizes his dark side. Do you get it yet? Do you get it? You know, like, I feel like that's what they do to us. And we're know? like, uh, <laughs> and we're like, uh, okay. I didn't get that. I was watching <laughs> boobies and zombies. That is uh, so and there funny. Was, and guns. Um, the sets for the cemetery in the film were built upon actual abandoned cemetery grounds in Italy. Wait, what? They built the cemetery on an actual abandoned cemetery that they found in Italy. Please tell me they built around it and not on top of it. No, it says built upon. Oh, God. Because, like, have we not seen remember, poltergeist? You, you got to remember, too, this is Italy. I mean, they've got okay. a long history. So, I mean, you know, you're talking about Romans. I mean, it... You're you're fucking around with some, you know, ghosts of a different level in this place. I mean, when you're when you're going that route, yeah. Uh, according to the director, the Returners, aka the zombies, get their energy from the mandragola roots in the cemetery, which makes sense because every zombie you really see in this movie, like the the roots of burial, are yeah. burrowed into the the dead body before they reanimate. Uh, now I did. I, I forgot about this visual, but I love this. The mysterious floating lights that hover around Della Morte and she as they are kissing upon the grave are supposed to be Igni uh, Fatuous, which means fool's fire. Another name is uh, um, uh, Will O' Wisp in, in American lore. Uh, it's a natural occurring fire-like light sometimes seen during twilight in swampy oh, areas. Okay. And some people think that they're like you know like almost orb-like manifestation of spirits. You okay, know? that makes sense. Uh, that I did think that was a cool effect with Willow is the way they were blue green and they were kind of floating around the two of them as they were, you know, getting ready to, uh, make sweet, sweet love upon her dead husband's <laughs> grave, which was the whole thing. Sweet, sweet love. Uh, the hard rock tone one can hear every time there's a motorcycle on screen is the instrumental version of Ozzy Osbourne's Hellraiser from the 1991 album, No More Tears. Interesting. Okay. The English translation of Della Morte Della Moore is of death of love. Mm-hmm. 
So there you go. An American company was willing to fund and distribute the movie if Matt Dillon was cast as Francesco instead of uh, Rupert Everett. Um, uh, I don't think I'd like that. I'm no. not the biggest fan of Matt Dillon. I don't know why people are. I think he's okay as an actor. Yeah. But I, th- I always think back to him. I, if I'm not mistaken, he is the guy in There's Something About Mary, yeah, right? Yeah, that's the if, only if, if, one I liked him. He was a creeper, but he was a I, cheesy I creeper. Stand him in, I couldn't even stand him in that, but yes. he, he played the part right. Yes, he was he did. supposed to be. Um, I don't know. He, I the way you talk about uh, it's uh, maybe a little bit different, but the way you talk about like uh, uh, Jensen, yeah, you know, Jensen Ackles, you get, a, you get a vibe about him as like a person. I get that about Matt Dillon. Like I don't, I don't like what I'm seeing when I see him. I don't know why it is, but uh, in 2009, the horror. Oh, he was in Wild in Things. Head. What's that? He was in Wild Things. Yeah, uh, I I was paying attention to something else. I'm sure you were, which is great. And it wasn't Kevin Bacon before anybody says anything. I can't really, I can't, I see, there's other movies that people would recognize if I said them, but they're not really movies that really stand out. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't get what the hype is about him. I I don't understand him either. I mean, uh, but uh, I've, I've seen like, fans of movies like anytime that he is supposed to be in something they the first thing they throw out there is like oh my god matt dillon's in this it has to be great and i'm like what? what i never thought that whenever i see him in a movie i'm just yeah. like it's almost a detriment to seeing the movie when i see him yeah okay <laughs> anyways moving forward uh, in, in 2009 the horror website a shot in the head chose anna fauci's boobs from her nude scenes in this film as their number one in the list of top 10 boobs in, in horror movies i can't argue I can't, I can't argue either. Mm-hmm. I mean, her she's got an hourglass shape in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's displayed at least twice, you know. So, um, music group Tangerine Dream were originally supposed to compose the soundtrack, but dropped out due to scheduling conflicts. Now, that would have been interesting because Tangerine Dream was the one that did the soundtrack to uh, Legend that oh. we Legend has it. Did. Legend has <laughs> it. It's floating out there somewhere in one of my computers. Um, but. It would, they would have been a perfect fit for this movie because they do like weird, like, you know, surreal music well, anyways, that would have fit this movie. Yeah. Uh, in the film's Spanish release, it was humorously retitled Mi Novia es un zombie, meaning my fiance is a zombie. That my, my, that's my girlfriend is a zombie, but okay. <laughs> Uh, that's that's what that says. I don't know. Interesting. I, there's always context. Yes. To, uh, th- that's the thing about Spanish. It's like, it's how it's being said, that's not true. the meaning of the word. Um, and that is all of the uh, trivia I have about this one. I, I I do enjoy the movie. That's why I wanted to cover it. It's it, I, if nothing else for how weird it is. Um, it's it, and it's it's a zombie movie, but. It's not at the same time, so it's kind of a weird one. I mean, um, we just reviewed Death Becomes Her. That's a it's a zombie movie, but it's not, you know. Yeah, I know, but like this one is more blatantly a zombie movie. But then whenever you read the context and you get what it's actually about, it the zombies are just like they're they're not even they're just symbolism for something else. Like they're not even like yeah. I mean, but I feel know, like zombies are symbolism for a lot of things and. Almost all of the movies, maybe not every single one, but a vast majority now, the zombies are a symbolism of something else. They they do stand in for other things, but they're typically recognized as being like a core part of the movie. Whereas in this one, once you get to the end, they're dropped like a bad habit. Like there's that the the turning point in this movie is whenever he's sitting there shooting wildly while talking to Franco on the phone, which is oh yeah, you know, symbolic in its own right. And the zombie, the zombies are all over the cemetery at that point, and then they just disappear for the rest of the film, and you don't, and you don't see them, you know, because it switches to him actually shooting people, which I guess is him working backwards to what he actually did and accepting, you know, what instead of like putting the zombies out there as his victims, it's like no, they were real life people, and I fucking killed them. That's that. I that was me, you know. Yeah. Um. What was I gonna say though? Um. Having having reviewed, uh, we, we just reviewed um, Warm Bodies recently, and I, I was telling you how I'm reading the book now, and I feel like in this book, the zombies are re- representing something political I'm not going to get into, but 
I'm hoping it doesn't stay that way. Like, I understand the need to have a zombie represent something political. I prefer that they're just represented as a threat. Or a potential threat. I prefer them being stand-ins for a threat of some kind, whether that, I mean, because that's essentially what they they started out as being, like, you know, fear. I mean, if you go back to Romero's first film that featured them, they were fear of your neighbor, you know, like becoming, you know, like so politically charged or so, you know, uh, uh, basically just dehumanized that they started attacking one another. Yeah. I mean, and so they're always like some antagonist of some kind, even in the, you know, in movies where they're, they're not, you know, so them being representative of like what you were kind of hinting to me and like off air comments of yes. like downtrodden people. I, I know some zombie movies go that route, but I don't, I hate that whenever they do that, you yeah. know, to a certain extent, it's like, uh, Oh, we can't, uh, you're, you're shooting zombies. That means you're the oppressor because you don't recognize that they're really a stand in for the homeless people in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. that <laughs> zombies like, have rights up. too. Yeah, they have rights. Uh, there is a movie out there that I, I remember watching at one point in time that, that addresses that one thing. It's like somebody's arguing that zombies have rights and they shouldn't be killing them or whatever. So, in fact, The Walking Dead has a group of people oh, yeah? who are zombie sympathizers later on in the in the show. Oh my god. Um anyways, that was a side tangent I took us on. But as far as this movie goes, I think it I think it's it should be seen more by more people, but the thing is is I don't I don't know if it's ever going to find like a huge audience because at least in America because like I said, I don't think it's blatant enough. Like we yeah. we prefer our messages being given to us spoon fed in a lot of cases, which is bad. It doesn't have but... to be spoon fed, but I think that the way it was presented in this was just a little too wild. I think there's a, a better way to go about showing this was all in the head without having to have it spelled out completely. If you have to completely explain it, that's bad. You know, um, and there's people that love the kind of movies where you, it's like, well, what happened at the end of that movie? And you're like, well, what do you think happened? This, 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 it's okay. You know, if that's what the director, the creator, if that's the route that they wanted to go. Um, I think they tried to be, I think they tried to have it spelt out a little bit for us silly Americans. I mean, at the beginning, you have the snow globe. And at the end, you have that image of the snow globe. So you know this is a reality that does not exactly exist. Yes. This is in something. And that that harkens back to uh, the the Rosebud scene in, um, I'm blanking on the name, the uh, Orson Welles movie, you know, the, the famous one that he, you know, that he made. Uh, it, it, they, they deliberately took the snow globe for in the same sense that movie had, cause that, that movie had is one of those same type of movies you're talking about where at the end of it, it's like, what did Rosebud mean? What is this symbolizing with the snow globe? What? And it's talking about his lost innocence and he, and Rosebud was the name of his, uh, spoiler alert was the name of his, uh, sled that he had as a child. So it was like, he was actually going, he was on his deathbed. He was regretting the loss of his childhood. Basically, yeah. is what the what he was trying to say, but it, it was a sim, symbolic thing, and and I think that's what they were going for. In fact, on the um, on the behind the scenes when they're talking about this movie, uh, when they're going over it, they mention the fact that the book is actually way more linear, and it actually walks you through the story. And they deliberately went out of their way to make it more weird to throw you know throw it make it you know more surreal and make it you know. You have to really work to get the meaning out of it, in other words. Okay, and that's fine. But if you're going to do that, you need to understand that it's not going to hit the With everybody, <laughs> the target, not even so much target audience, but the peak audience that you want to reach. You want it to kind of reach everybody, or maybe you're like, okay, I want this to reach a certain artistic crowd that understands this. And it's like, well, now you're talking about the minority. There's going to be very yeah. few people that understand it the way that you do. So you need to give a little, don't give too much. Cause if you give the whole movie away, then it's just like, well, that was stupid. You know, <laughs> definitely a little bit of mystery is appreciated. But at this point where we're sitting there and we're like, this was just crazy. And I can't piece together nothing. You didn't do a great job. 
I don't care how silly of American I am or what I sound like saying that. You you didn't do a good job, and it shows in the numbers. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I personally appreciate it for, for being out there and having that sort of thing, but I agree with you as far as commercial marketability. Yeah. It's very limited. You can, you can reach. Well, here's the thing, like too, is you can have a weird film that ends up being a cult classic because you have people talking about it. Clearly, people are not talking about this. Which is, I think, is unfortunate because I think it is definitely, like, this is a film that I would recommend people to watch. Because I feel like it has more than what I'm getting from it. Which, just because I don't prefer it doesn't mean that I don't understand that. So, it's definitely like, yeah, watch this film. You might find it crazy interesting, especially with all the theories that either you can come up with on your own or that people have already come up with. When you read those, you're like, oh my god, like... Because you're telling me a few of the theories, and I'm like, yeah, I can't. I my brain can't come up with anything that would <laughs> contradict what you're saying, or like, no, that's not right, and this is why I think you're not right. Because there are some people that can do that. I am not one of those. But like, I don't know. I I just think that even people like us are not. Well, we're discussing it on the show, but I don't think enough people like us are because of the fact that it's so hard to interpret. The weird thing is, I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. The weird thing is, I think there's some people straight up that like this movie just for it's got boobs, it's got guns, it's got zombies. <laughs> I mean, they told they don't even there's not even a hint of trying to figure out any yes. of the rest of it. It's like it's got stuff that I like to see on screen. Which, it's, it's cool with me. I can't argue that because, like my husband said, I'm a simple woman. I if there's something exploding <laughs> on the on the scene, I'm like, oh, okay, you got me. You're not even five minutes in the movie when a zombie head explodes in this movie. Yes, Seriously, that I is mean, true. It, it gets right into the action. I was like, okay, here we go. You know, it it did keep me it did keep me watching for a while. So why well, I, I wouldn't say I didn't pick up my phone really. I think I was good. Yeah, it, it's it's only toward the end where he starts killing the people that you're like, what the fuck is going on in this Yeah, movie? and then not getting that's caught. The, yeah. But that's okay because that's when you knew something is not right, something's not real. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and there's more to this than what we're seeing on yeah. the screen. I think it needed the whole killing random people at random times part and then him kind of going off his rocker because that's when you're like, no. That's not how reality works. So it was a good thing that it did that because then it gets you thinking, okay, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, and, but that's and that and that's where I could see a lot of people dropping out of this movie and saying they didn't like it is because you wait for the other shoe to drop and then you get to the end and it's him and Nagi on the cliff uh, overlooking the abyss. Yeah, and it's just like if you don't know any of the context behind the movie about that him overlooking death total then you're just like, what the, and it just ends at that point in the snow globe. You're like, what the fuck did I just want? Like nobody killed him. He didn't kill. What, what just fucking happened in this movie? Yeah. That's where you're at. Whenever you get to that scene. Exactly. I mean, that, that's the, that's the point where you either, uh, you know, if you know the context, you appreciate the hell out of what they're doing at the end of it, or you're like, fuck this movie for wasting <laughs> my time because nothing happened. You know, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of stuck somewhere in the middle of that. I'm in like a weird purgatory right now. Um, You're in a weird something between life and death. Yeah. You would say on that one. Yes, I would exactly <laughs> say that. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're caught on this episode with that, folks. Peace be with you. And with your spirit. 